We had the one man, Adam, as representative over all of humanity and creation. And now, in the great restoration, we have the one man, Jesus, represented over all of humanity and creation. Romans 5.15, really, there's this whole section there in Romans 5. You may want to make a note about that. But especially this verse says this, but the free gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounding for many. Furthermore, we've got history behind us at that point. We've got everything from original sin to God's covenant promises and the law. And we've got the incarnation. We've got the resurrection. We've got the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the history of the church and our own realities, our own souls intertwined, knitted by God and unleashed into history knitted together by the hands of God, created in the image of God. And we've got this. We've got the scope and the scale of revelation. We've got everything that plays out in the scroll of the lamb, the cosmic battles, the final and full defeat of Satan and all rebellious, wicked powers forever dealt with. That's why the ways of the rebellious must be fully and finally dealt with. Only the redeemed and renewed of the Lord can stand forever in this new creation, heavens and earth. Almost everything is different this next time around. In fact, the only thing that isn't different is God himself the unchanging one, his permanency, his unchanging nature, his accomplished purposes. And he is the one that assures us that eternity will be without sin. That right there is how we can know this time will be different. First John 3, 2 says this great promise, beloved, we are God's children now, And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him, Jesus. No longer like him, Adam. There is a becoming pure right now, a never arriving work that you and I participate in. We always talk about ourselves as, as works in progress, but there will be then a purified point, glorified hearts, glorified bodies, just as our physical bodies will be resurrected eternally, no longer subject to decay. Something we talked about last week with the resurrection of the dead the resurrection of the body, because of the perfecting and the perfected work of Jesus on our behalf, we will also be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood, physically without imperfections, continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what we have to die to. Our world, imperfected selves, the the identities that we have with Adam, we have to die to that. And then we have to die toward this purified point. When we think of it like this, in light of the coming resurrection, this can really rob death of its sting. (laughs) It's actually something we can look forward to. Like we'll talk about later tonight, let's, let's try to see even death differently in light of Revelation. Jude 24 and 25, these are the last verses in our Bible that lead up to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, that we've been studying. Jude 24 and 25 say this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is the one that can keep you and hold you and preserve you purified in him. Our stumbling would be a great threat eternally if it was left on us. If we were to have a redo like the other times, and if not for the one who is able to preserve us, that same one will present his people blameless, without stain, without corruption, before the presence of his glory. When we find ourselves before the throne, we will be unblemished, perfected by the blood of Christ, and the spirit reforming us no longer works in progress towards sanctification. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, we have to be reborn. No amount of cleansing has ever worked or will ever work apart from being entirely reborn by the spirit. We have to have an entirely new birth by the spirit. I want to share a few more verses because this is just such a profound, great, secure anchor that we have in our eternal security. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. 2 Corinthians 4.11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. This is why you can look forward to death right here, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. At this perfected point of humanity, we hear definitive, joy-filled words from the throne. It is done. Revelation 21.6, he will have brought all of that perfecting work to completion. It's done. Our guarantee, our eternal security of heavenly perfection and endurance and eternal faithfulness is not within us. It's within him. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Today's lesson, we at this point are done with battles. Think about that. We're done with judgments and wrath being poured out. We're done with threats blasphemies, violence, destruction, lies, dirtiness, and warped perversions of things. We're done with all of that. Only the best things left to, to enjoy. Right there, do you see why this book, this work, this hope is so essential for the Christian to hold to? And it all starts like a wedding day. Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. See, these last two chapters of Revelation, they don't just set a reset button, pushing everything back to the way it was in Genesis one and Genesis two. No, these, these last two chapters go beyond that to a fresh world that is entirely in order and in peace, shalom, in which God is fully present with his people. God's ultimate purpose in doing this whole creation thing in the first place was always to be with his creation, to be present with his creation. We are the ones that left we are the ones that left. We took the good things that God intended for us and we took them, snatched them, 
and walked away. All of us with perversions and temptations and deception and lies and self-identification, all of us wandered away from the perfect life walking with God. And he didn't just sit there disappointed. He made a way so that he could dwell with us fully and completely again glorifying him through countless activities and adventures, enjoying him forever. That's what we're going to explore by the end of our time tonight. How you and I can understand everything from the temple to the law to the life of Jesus and how we can look at that now all backwards in light of revelation, in light of this renewed foundation. I can obey God now. I can, I can watch my mouth now. I can afford to give to the poor now. I can sacrificially love and care for others now because of this great plan of restoration. Let's keep going with Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This isn't in my notes yet, but me and a friend were talking earlier about how it's not that we will go to this new existence. This, like God has always done, comes to us. It comes to us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. I really, really encourage you to dive deeper into this chapter way more than we're gonna have time to do tonight. Keep reading this great promise, secure anchor that we have in Revelation 21. Keep reading it over and over and over and over. The final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth together. Creation has been restored. Humanity has been restored. Isaiah 66, 22 says this, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I, shall, that, that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name. It's not just done away with forgotten. It's all redeemed and restored and brought in here. Humanity and all of our glorious diversity that reflects our maker has been fully healed from all the pains of history. Every step that the bride of the lamb, the church, takes toward her husband, Jesus, on this wedding day is a step forward into a new reality of peace and harmony with God, alongside God. No tears, the groom is there to wipe away every tear. The great, the great imagery and the great intimacy here is not just, hey, there will be no more reason for tears. It's that the groom will, will intimately wipe away every tear. Such an intimate, beautiful picture. And death has been forever dismantled. Reading our Bibles backwards in, in light of Revelation, this is why we can now understand what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, when he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The one who did it before on Easter Sunday, conquered death, does it right here. Revelation 21, 5, it is done. It's no wonder, or maybe I should say it's actually a great wonder that it's right here that John gets carried away in the spirit. Chapter 21, verse 10, to a high mountain showing him the bride, the wife of the lamb. Verses nine and 10 there. 
Each time we see John in the spirit, it's at what we've called four pivotal signposts of the letter, four pivotal points. And this is the last one, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the bride of the lamb, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. The gates of Jerusalem. I think we have a a picture of one of them. They presently look like this, the gates of Jerusalem. That's the Damascus gate. Upon the wall, Nehemiah built after the forces of evil attacked the city. The gates and the walls will no longer be subject to enemy forces. They will instead stand forever as reminders of how God conquered over all of history, his story. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the name, were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Let me read that again, because if that didn't hit you, that's a whole sermon right there. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. If we can start to actually read our Bibles backwards, if we can take revelation and what we encounter there and then go back to the beginning of Mark, that is astonishing. The 12 apostles, their names serve as the foundation for all of God's people for all of eternity. Go back to the beginning of Mark. Do you see these shining examples coming on the scene? No, you see fishermen just doing their thing. Sometimes bumbling idiots, opening their mouths and and making all kinds of mistakes. People that denied Christ. And you're sitting there and going, these guys, (laughs) these guys are the ones that for all of eternity are going to have their names as a foundation for billions. It's astonishing now in light of revelation, when, when these guys were just going about their work one day, just, just tending their nets or being a tax collector, or doing whatever they were doing. They were just going about their day. But when Jesus saw them, he accepted them in that state, but said, I got great plans for you. And you and I hear that, and we usually translate that like, you have great plans to use me for discipleship and and missions and outreach. What if we had a picture where Jesus called these guys, and when he said, come follow me, in the back of his mind was for all of eternity, the church is going to stand on a foundation with your name on it. That's astonishing. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against this foundation. So maybe all of our hangups, maybe all of our mistakes are not what define us in light of eternity. Maybe Jesus sees a whole other reality. This is why I said that verse right there can be a sermon that what what might God want to do in our lives? What what eternal signposts might exist that that we get to a crossing of a road or or a statue or something and, and we get to remember for all of eternity, yeah, that's when my son or my daughter did that great thing in their life and for all of eternity, it's celebrated. Do you see why over and over and over our Bibles are telling us don't get caught up by sin. Don't let anything, apathy, sin, deception, laziness, don't let anything keep you from the kind of life God wants for you in eternity. It's so much better. Don't get caught up in the here and now. How might we actually live differently in light of this? I see it now, God. I see the point of all of revelation that you will be glorified and that your church can endure because of that. Fast forward uh, to verse 22. 
and I saw no temple in the city. You don't have to go to church in eternity. (laughs) For the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. The radiant presence of the Lord is all we need to light our way. The radiant presence of the Lord is always walking with us alongside of us in this reality. This wedding day-like celebration is the party that kicks it all off. And as if that is not enough, let's keep going into chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree We're for the healing of the nations. Oh God, we need that. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That is some Genesis rich imagery right there also echoed in Ezekiel 47 and and Psalm 46. There's the river of the water of life and the fruitful tree of life. That's the one that we were restricted from eating from because we would have been locked in our rebellious, wayward, corrupted nature. And those that choose to allow Jesus to baptize us and cleanse us from our old selves, we are renewed and then able to enjoy that fruit at last. Revelation chapter 22 sees that humanity is back to their purpose in Genesis to rule as God's image, to carry his name in integrity and to take creation into new and uncharted territory. I want to read that again because I want us to know that when you think what's, what's heaven and, and the new heaven and the new earth going to be like, if anyone has ever told you it's a bunch of singing and cloud riding, it's so much better. Humanity is back to their purpose of Genesis to rule in God's image, to carry his name in integrity and to take this creation into new and uncharted territory. Let's let's take this creation in new ways, God says. I heard a line in Peter Pan once that I think said something like, to die will be an awfully big adventure. And I read Revelation and I go, yeah, it will. Yeah, it will. And there we will see his face, verse four. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So now reading backwards again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 John 3, 2, I quoted this before when we were talking about our assurance that we have an eternal preservation. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. (laughs) Picture that people of the seven churches. Those that heard about the life of Jesus and are now in Rome suffering for him. Maybe wondering if it's all worth it. Can we really hang on? Because this oppression that I'm facing is real. Maybe people who wish they had firsthand accounts about Jesus 
Listen to this. This letter says, hold on for this. There will be no more veil, no more distortion, perfected intimacy and fellowship and representation face to face. Verse six, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. And then just before the great reveal is over, it kind of seems right there with, with verse seven, like, like it's an appropriate ending. It kind of echoes the very beginning of the book, chapter one, verse three. John finds himself scolded <laughs> once again for worshiping the angel, worshiping the experience apart from God. And yes, it's great stuff and it, it can get us worked up in excitement, but don't get caught up or carried away by experiences. Even the revival-like experiences, even great angelic proclamations, even the great gospel deliverers worship God. And he says, I am coming soon. He says it three times there. Three times. Behold, I am coming soon, verse 7. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. And then verse 20, surely, I am coming soon. I know it's been a couple of months, but I need us to remember what we, we first engaged in. That's, that's one of those keys to understanding this idea of revelation that it has to do with time. Understanding revelation has a critical understanding of time to it. When we presently have this sense of an imminency and immediacy to all this, God's purposes are set. He is outside of time, above time, ensuring that all of this is certain to happen. And then for us who, who do not stand above time, here's the challenge. We read all this and then maybe we close the book and we're back in the story. <laughs> we're back in history there will come a definitive time where all of this will be. A point where everything from worship that the angels are proclaiming to judgments, to the removal of the restraints for the enemy to be given away to him themselves will all not just be pointed to and prophesied of, but will soon be realized and final. But we are not done. We are given this, the great revelation, the great unveiling, we are given this because we are not done. We're not done with our chapter where God has us in his story. So endure, church. Stay pure, hold fast, and worship like never before. I want everyone to take, take a deep sigh. We're done with the content of Revelation. Not, not with tonight's teaching, but we're done with the content of Revelation. The overview that we've had of it. What do you do when you get to the end of a really good book? Or a really good movie? I want to watch that again, <laughs> right? Or maybe like it's a really good meal. You learn, next time I'm, I'm going to not rush through it. I'm going to savor it. I'm going to see what I can pick out next time that I, that I couldn't the first time around. Next time, I'm going to build upon what I've learned. Now, knowing what I know, now I'm going to go back over it and I'm going to experience it in a new way. Isn't it true with some of those mind-bending movies that you've seen? The first time through, you barely get it. But it teaches you, hey, next time through, pay attention to that scene. I've, I've listened to Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, yeah, listen 
to, not like thumb through like with paper. I've listened to that probably three or four times and I love it. And I know how every time I go through it, there are certain points in the book, certain scenes that I just wanna play on like slow motion because I know this scene is so critical in how it plays out over the whole of the story. It's so rich. For Revelation, I promise you, we did not nearly cover everything there is to see in it. We, ju we just covered kind of the main stuff to try to get an overview, hopefully to, to demystify it a little bit. I said in the very beginning, if we can make it seem more accessible and more necessary for the people of the church, that's the goal of these eight weeks. And here's the important thing, kind of coming more to the end of this content, not again, tonight's teaching, that I hope we understand at this point, that this apocalypse is not pretend, it's promise. This is not some science fiction that we pick up. This is the assurance of our God from above all of time. This is his promise to us. And as we take that big sigh and we set the book down, we still find ourselves in the midst of history. That's why it's such a good gift. With beasts and prostitutes all around us doing their thing. And that's where the people of the seven churches found themselves. We still find ourselves somewhere in the midst of the story, in the midst of time. We are not done. So endure, hold fast, call people to repent and worship. Now that we're on this side of the study, we can hopefully see the ways that Revelation has masterfully accomplished what it set out to do. To, to pull the curtain back and show the people of God how over all of history, no matter what the beasts and the prostitutes try to do, God will be glorified Church, endure. It's a certainty. So what are you living for? What side are you living for? If I pull out my phone, my calendar, look at my budget, what would it say my values are for this time or for eternity? When I very first sat down to map out this, this study, I knew we couldn't just get to the end of the content and stop there. Not because the content isn't sufficient, but because you kind of get to the end of Revelation, you take that big sigh and it kind of leaves you with a question like, so what? And that's why the answer for us that I'm proposing, so what, is read your Bibles backwards now in light of these realities. I assure you that if it's not already happening, you're gonna see things through a revelation filter in new ways, in scripture and beyond scripture. And so for me, I've found that there are kind of seven different ways that I can see things in a new way in light of this. And that's why I want those, not to just stick with me and then fade away as this study fades into the background. I want them to stay in front of me. I want this encounter with the great reveal to stay in front of me. And so that's why we have magnets. That's why we have this thing that, that hopefully we can put up and remind ourselves, see these seven things in a new way in light of this, in light of John's great reveal. It's kind of like when Pastor Brent finished his Culture Wars series, I hope it didn't just tell us, ooh, that, that was really interesting in how it tackled issues of the day and then we put it away and forget about it and let it fade. No, we want that to stick with us. We want these things to be a new way at which we see things and engage with our world. So here we go. Here are the seven things. See Jesus anew. And then there's a note, and keep seeing him anew. Now that keep seeing him anew part, that probably relates to all these things that we should keep all of them anew in our minds. But as the main character of Revelation, as the main character over all of human history, see Jesus in a new way in light of this. He is 
far more than just his three decades in human history. Start off by seeing Jesus anew and then keep pressing that refresh button on him. Let me see you in a new way. Let me see you in a new way. See his timelessness more than just his birth, the three decades of ministry, three years of ministry, three decades on earth. See him above all of history. See him as the great and spotless lamb who was slain but still lives. See him as the lion of Judah. See him as the one that comes riding on that white horse with his robe dipped in blood. See him like that and then go back to Mark and read the account where he stooped down and washed the feet of his disciples like he was a servant. That's what I mean by by read your Bibles backwards. In light of revelation, in light of who we see Jesus is, how shocking is that episode now? The ways that demons shudder and obey, (laughs) in light of Revelation, we go, yeah, you better run. (laughs) It all makes sense now that, that demons would obey him without hesitation. And it makes absolutely no sense that people don't obey him and that I don't obey him. Jesus's teachings are more profound His compassion is more sweet. The rejection that he faces from his own disciples is more shocking. His trial, his beating, now it's going to be more gut-wrenching. His resurrection somehow is even more glorious. And his great commission is more unthreatened in light of this. In light of all that we have seen and experienced in Revelation, see Jesus anew. Next, see sin anew. In many ways, this is probably the most practical thing that is sticking with me from this Revelation study. I have personally experienced the temptation and the rebellion that creeps into my life looking more putrid and offensive than ever. More like like a cheap knockoff or fool's gold. I once heard a phrase that the grass is only greener on the other side because the enemy came and spray painted it that way. Yeah, that's how sin looks now. That's how the temptation in my life looks and feels. And here's the crazy thing that makes me want to rip my hair out. When I see it like that and I still engage in it, It makes me feel like Paul when he said, I do the very things I don't want to do. What a wretched man I am. In fact, I want to get back to that one when we talk about repentance in another context in a little bit. See sin anew as the agenda of the dragon, the beast, the prostitute, temptation, deception, false teachings, spiritual laziness. No sin is innocuous. No sin is a minor deal. Do not try to placate or deal with or manage your sin. Kill it. Destroy it. Run from it. And run towards Christ. See sin anew. Next one, see battles anew. Be prepared to fight, church differently. You want to wage war the world fights? You're only playing into the enemy's plan. The people of God are not called to lay down. We are called to fight and we fight differently. Scripture is constantly telling us, don't repay evil with evil. You want to conquer people in a battle with them? Then heap coals of kindness all over them. (laughs) Armor yourself up because the battles are real. Recognize that what seems like worldly pleasure is actually cosmic deception. The greatest, hardest battles that you and I are going to fight 
are probably not gonna be with bloodshed. They'll instead be with tears shed. In, in the Ephesus-like, Vegas-like world that we tend to live in, when the enemy leaves a person bloodied and beaten, there's not a whole lot of victory for the enemy there. But if the enemy can get you addicted to porn or laziness or pride or money or gossip or relenting to anger, that's where the dragon and the prostitute want you. Because then you're going to be isolated. Then you're going to be alone. And never forget the posture of Jesus. Never forget this. The posture of Jesus throughout his, his earthly ministry. What happens when he found people that were completely isolated and overcome by the enemy? When he found the demoniac, when he found those oppressed by the spirit, what was his posture towards them? He met them as a sympathetic liberator. Please remember that if you ever find yourself isolated in enemy territory. We think oftentimes, well, if I'm overcome by any of these addictions or, or I find myself just swallowed up by sin, the last person in the world I want to see is Jesus. And scripture tells us, no, if he finds you in enemy territory, he's there for you. He's there to liberate you. He's there for you. One more thing on this point. See tribulation, suffering, and martyrs anew. Remember that our world is going to try to convince us, the enemy is going to try to convince us that their loss is tragic. But heaven celebrates their faithfulness even through death as triumphant. I'm very convicted to celebrate and honor martyrs in a new way, profound ways in light of this. See death anew. I'm not saying that I'm looking forward to it now, but I'm also not not saying that. Paul said, which is better? I can't decide. To live is Christ. To die is gain. <laughs> Death in many ways has lost its sting. I don't want to make things too personal here, but I know that there are people in this room that know this on a personal level like I do. That, that death is hard and death hurts. But for those that, that love and are in and secured by Jesus, death has lost its sting in light of the promise of revelation. Death is not the greatest possible threat we'll ever face. It's a definitive transition point. And we know that in the end, death too will die at the return of Jesus and the day of the Lord. And see anew what the resurrection of the dead promises us. Fully renewed, imperishable, incorruptible existence. With God to lead us by our side. And then very seriously and quite solemnly, for those that have loved ones who have passed on apart from the security of Jesus. That right there leads us to the next one. While we have the chance, while our breath can still fog up a mirror, see calls to repent, yours and others anew. Does evangelism matter? Does spreading the message in our testimony matter? I will probably never forget the gut punch feeling that I encountered in the midst of this study in chapter 9 where God exhausts all the love and the call and the drawing to himself that he can and people still persist in their waywardness and their lostness. Like I said that week, it's like I, I, I just don't know what to do with that feeling. 
Speaking of reading our Bibles backwards, now I think I can actually understand just a little bit of what Paul shockingly said when he says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren. What a shocking statement. But if you feel the calls to repent, like Revelation invites us into like that, then I think that statement's maybe not so far off. In light of that need for all people to repent, I wish that I could be cut off in, if only they would repent. And it also puts some big highlights on on some of the warnings that God gives his churches. Chapters two and three of Revelation. Don't be overcome by stubbornness, people. Don't allow laziness, false teaching, temptations of the world to to affect your faithfulness. Take seriously the words I give you, he says, because it's the ones that I love that I reprove and discipline. Just like we said earlier, see sin anew. See calls to repent in a new way and practically do something about it. Two more. See the sword, the word of God anew. Don't get caught in the midst of battle without your weapon. Don't be just a soldier plopped down in the middle of a war, assigned a weapon. No, you have this weapon for a reason. Don't be a soldier assigned a weapon. Have it, use it. Don't neglect God's word. Don't be afraid of it and don't be inexperienced or untrained with it. When God's word calls me to be baptized, I see now in light of this that it's not some arbitrary act of religion. It's how he intends for the people of the church to take our lives and proclaim to a lost world, this is what God has done for me. I need you to see that. When God's word now calls me to be generous, I see now in light of this, it's because I can afford to do that because he is king enthroned in majesty and none of what he has given me is mine anyways. It's just what the king has graciously entrusted me with. Allow yourself to go into the deep most complex aspects of scripture and know your weapon well. Because no one finds the greatest veins of gold at the mouth of a cave. You have to mine deeply to get the greatest treasure. See the word of God in a new way. The army of the lamb conquers with this sword. We shine light into dark places with this sword. We detect lies and thwart efforts of the enemy with this sword. Finally, see worship anew. Worship is timeless in the sense that it's happening right now. It's unending and it's unthreatened. Our God is not likely to be worshipped or will eventually be worshipped or is waiting upon a certain outcome of history to then be worshipped or waiting for a certain style of music or the state of the church to be worshipped. Right now, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. When you are in your darkest hour, worthy, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. When Satan and the great dragon and all of his forces are given away to their rebellion and their ultimate judgment, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. God will be glorified. 
His church must endure for that. He is worthy and deserving. So may I challenge us to check lackluster offerings of worship. (laughs) This one may just be for me. But how petty it seems now that sometimes I might be more concerned about what people around me might think if I, if I raise my hands at this point in the song. I've somehow made his worship about me or, or my mood or the style of the music that I might like or dislike. It's not about me. How petty am I to check my offerings and joining in the choir with folded arms and instead fall on your knees and join in with the choir. Worship God. Join in alongside the choir of heaven. Not just someday when I die, but now. Join in the choir of heaven as a life lived in a sacrifice of praise. Not just in song, not just in communal expressions. Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Something in my life, a sacrifice means it's costly to give it. He deserves that kind of worship. The more costly it might be for me to give it, Maybe that makes it a more valuable sacrifice. Revelation 1, 3, one last time. Would you actually stand? I think it's gonna be on the screens. Revelation 1, 3. And would you say this with me? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And then Revelation concludes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So as we stand, as we live lives of expression of worship, let's take communion. And I'm, I'm just so compelled. If you need to take communion, there's elements back there. We'd love for you to grab that. I'm just so compelled that, that there are definitely times where communion and remembering how his body was broken needs to be solemn. Needs to be a moment where we don't take that lightly. And I don't think we're in danger with the perspective that we get out of Revelation of taking his body being broken lightly. I just think we remember didn't stay broken, did it? It didn't stay defeated. His body broken for us is how we have this everlasting promise. Let's take that in celebration. And your blood, Jesus. When we sing, when we proclaim, when we recognize that we will be unblemished before you, it's because your blood washes us white as snow. Cheers to that. Let's celebrate. God, help this stick with us. Help us go deeper. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being a part of this study.